Welcome to the Cannabis Connection. Hope you had a beautiful week. Thank you for tuning in to Santa Cruz Cannabis Talk Radio. Marijuana legalization, that long-deferred dream of stoners everywhere, is overtaking the nation. No longer will people be denied marijuana and needed that medicine for medical treatment. Even folks who just want to get high will have easy, safe access. But for many, that dream has become a nightmare. Legalization has achieved one thing, the wholesale handover of cannabis to a few large corporations. In state after state, the wealth-building capacity of this extraordinary plant is now concentrating into the control of the already rich. From seed to smoke, legalization is eroding the lives and livelihoods of the people it was supposed to help. The patients, growers, trimmers, mules, and activists who created the colorful and committed culture that is now under threat. We can end the war on cannabis without turning it into a war on small family growers, but it will depend on how much pressure we are willing to apply to force lawmakers to serve local communities rather than corporate interests. Marijuana, a love story, is a report from the front, a reminder of how and why we fell in love with this plant, and a cautionary tale of corporate power, and a call to once more free the sacred herb. This is the book we are reviewing and excited to welcome Derek Jensen. He's the author of more than 25 books, including Marijuana, a Love Story. So welcome. Thank you so much for joining us, Derek, to the Cannabis Connection. Oh, thanks. So. Thanks so much for having me. Can you tell the world where you are joining us this evening? Uh, yeah, from Crescent City. That's uh, one county north of the Emerald Triangle uh, up in Del Norte. Yeah, real far north. You're almost in Oregon and up up there in Crescent City. We love it up there. We have some family and friends. That's very nice. Yeah, I love it here too. It's uh, it's beautiful, which is why I moved here. Fantastic. And where where about where are your roots? Are you from Northern California or where? You know, how did this uh, come to your life? Um, I uh, was born in Nebraska. Grew up in Colorado. Then. Uh, lived in Nevada for a couple of years, which I didn't like very much, and then lived in North Idaho, which I enjoyed, Eastern Washington, and then, and then uh, settled in Northern California, and I'm going to live here the rest of my life. Fantastic! And can you tell us how this sacred plant, how did cannabis come to your life, and and this 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 journey, this beginning of this um, tale that you've written with uh, the co-author Tony, uh, Tony Salvaggio. Um, well, it, I, I was an unlikely person to do this because uh, I've never done any drugs. Um, I mean, it's fine if people do, but I haven't. I, I, I don't even drink caffeine except to stay awake on a long trip. And I have Crohn's disease. And my doctors kept saying, you know, you might try it for this. And honestly, I was a little bit scared. You know, it's like somebody who's not been around drugs. I, I, mean, I had friends who would do drugs at concerts or whatever, but I'd never participated. And then um, uh, I started started using it for the for the Crohn's and it was uh, um, it was pretty miraculous. And uh, my first my very first experience was pretty dreadful and a lot of people have had similar experiences. I I was in pain one day and I was at a friend's house and uh, she I said, do you have anything for the pain? Thinking, I don't know, Tylenol or something. And she didn't, but she had a, a marijuana cookie. And uh, this will probably mean quite a lot to people who are familiar with them. That I, She gave me the entire cookie. And, um, <laughs> We've all been there. <laughs> yeah. I was, uh, yeah, I was, I was, uh, yeah, I was hallucinating pretty much for the next, many many hours uh um but then uh so the next day i felt honestly pretty stupid and uh it helped me understand why people can easily vote for either democrats or republicans and uh then the day after that i uh i realized i hadn't been in any pain at all for the last 48 hours and that was pretty much the day i became a uh 
convert to medical marijuana. Yeah, that's that's it's so important too. The the key thing here is the the from the patient's perspective and and medical. That's kind of what the roots are here. And, and can you speak to you know the structure of the of the book, Marijuana: A Love Story, um, is available. People can pick up a copy, and that's kind of what we're here to support. And uh, like for example, we have a mutual friend that connected us. And, and can you speak to the you know, the people in this book and the people in this story and the connection to the medical movement. Um, sure. So so I, I started growing maybe a couple years after the, uh, the cookie incident and, um, and then got to know more and more growers and, and, you know, just more people in the whole scene. And as... As, as legalization was unfolding, it, it seemed pretty clear to, to most of us that this was not going to unfold as, as many people had hoped. And that, you know, we saw what was happening in Colorado, where by now I think four economic entities control the, you know, the majority of the Colorado market. And Washington and Oregon, small farmers were, were going out. And so Tony and I decided to write a book about it. And because everybody we talked to had the same sort same sort of story, like this is this is going to be a disaster, and we so we then had to decide how we wanted to write the book. And Tony's background is in I mean marijuana as well, but his his background is in policy, and he's been working on marijuana policy and environmental policy for a long time. And we decided pretty quickly we didn't want to write just a policy book, you know, which would talk about you know, X number of farmers going out of business and, you know, this, the, the harm to various people who have been working very hard to uh, develop uh, really, like, high-intensity CBD strains or, or whatever or to, to, to maintain heirloom strains. You know, all these people with these sort of funky directions that they were going were, were – we, we, we could do a book – that would talk about various policy aspects, but pretty quickly we realized that that wouldn't cut to the core of it, that the core is, you know, marijuana is an extraordinary plant. And one of the things that I love about this is that there are so many people who, who like this one woman, this one grower said to me that uh, she had felt blessed to be able to make uh, a reasonable living through a relationship with this plant and how many people there were and are who had that sort of relationship. And I, we wanted to be able to uh, capture that, not just do sort of a dry policy thing, but instead how and why it is that so many people have so fallen in love with the plant and also just as I'm sure I don't have to tell you, you know, we, we want to manifest the sort of wacky culture that has grown up around it. And, you know, the culture in all of its beauty and, and nastiness, too. I mean, there's, as you know, there's some pretty nasty stuff goes on as well. And we wanted to, to really sort of, I know this sounds too highfalutin, but to sort of make the book manifest that experience the best we could of, you know the the craziness, the the parts of this that follow the American dream, the parts of this that that um, have really helped people, and you know all the single mothers who've been trimmers. We wanted to uh, to bring all of that in so that it could. We would talk about policy as well, but we wanted to explore other avenues having to do with the plant. I think that's really important too in this time that a lot of there's a lot of maybe newcomers to the space and the, the, the medical movement was such an interesting, colorful time, and the, especially from your experience coming from a, a patient's perspective and, and to, to kind of help steward that culture into this new era, in, in, in many ways, too, we're experiencing Farmageddon, an extinction event. Uh, we've had these purges throughout the transition from the Prop 215 era to the post-Prop 64 era in in california specifically and i would love to hear your thoughts on the you know how the culture has changed and you know how you were able to like 
put that essence into the into the story and maybe tease the audience with little glimpses of parts of the of the story or how this this um, you know saga was structured. Um, well, thanks for that question, and thanks for your great questions altogether. And you know, one of the things that that Tony really helped me understand is, I mean, as well as everything else, he's really a, a historian of the the entire movement. And you know, I also talked to a lot of people who are some real old timers. You know, some people who've been growing since the '70s, and and. One of the things that they really impressed on me was the notion that there there really wasn't or hasn't been one marijuana culture. There was, for one thing, that especially with illegality, there were that made some communication more difficult, which meant that there were some different cultures would develop in, you know, Petrolia than up here in Del Norte, and that would be different than in Shasta. So it was some geographical difference, and then also there were differences over time as there would be different waves of people would come in, that, that it really started with the, uh, you know, a lot of the back to the landers, and they would have a really strong land ethic, and then through many of the sort of timber booms and busts, there would be what I believe Ray Rafael calls the pragmatists, who were people who were, um, you know, just simply wanted to make a living, which nothing wrong with that, but um, they didn't have the same land ethic that a lot of the back landers had. And then we keep moving forward, and then we get various green rushers coming through, who many of whom were not even local, and that would uh, have even less of a land ethic than the than the the pragmatists, or especially the the original back to the landers. So you have this evolution over time of the. Um, Sort of you have you have waves of some people who who have a very strong land ethic associated with it. Some people are in love with the plant, and then you know I've also talked to people who their experience of marijuana culture in the region is that the only green people care about is the cash, and you know they exist too. And you know it's very interesting. This is a little sideline, but I, I just finished reading a book on the history of the Mississippi River from 1800 to 1865 or 1870 or something, and it was pretty interesting that. Um, some of the, I think some of the interesting stuff about the cannabis culture that developed here happens in many cultures where people have to be self-reliant and also there is, what I'm thinking about, I'll just cut to the chase, is that along the Mississippi River and from 1800 to 1830 where we've heard about, you know, the, the keel boats and the big rafts coming down the river, is that there was a different because there was no no organized law enforcement in the region. Um, both a a lot of theft happened, and b a lot of strong communities would form to protect against that. And we see some of that same stuff in the, the cannabis culture. That you know, I'm sure you've experienced lots of people who just rip people off left and right, and then other people who because you can't run to the cops when somebody steals from you. Instead, there's a lot of long-term, very strong relationships form where, you know, I've known some distributors who, you know, would gladly front a grower. You know, if it's, if it's a month before harvest and they're running short, they can gladly front a grower a bunch of money or also growers who will gladly front uh, their, the friends that they know who distribute will front them the pot. And it wasn't, you know, sometimes it's cash and carry, and sometimes there are these profound relationships develop. And then, of course, there are people who violate those uh, those relationships as well. Um, so we we played with that, and then and we we discussed that. And then also, there's just the another part that was in the book is that you know I'm sure, and I'll just turn this around and interview you for a second. I mean, we all have these crazy stories that people have of. You know, when I first started, when I was first growing for my first few years, I was, like, the worst grower in the world. And so I started asking growers, <laughs> what are the biggest biggest mistakes you've made? And, you know, one person said, you mean besides almost burning down my house? And, <laughs> you know, we all have. So I'm going to ask you, you know, like, what is the what is the stupidest? I mean, one of my stupidest things, and there's there's plenty of them, but one of them was I didn't, 
<laughs> I first tried growing outside, and I live in Crescent City. It's a rainforest, and I, I live near the coast, so it's not like I live up in Gasket or something where people do grow. And people do grow here, but they're better growers outdoors than I am. Anyway, my first year basically was just a giant uh, botrytis mold-covered I mean, the entire plant was brown oh, colored mold. Yeah, sure, yeah. And what did I try to do to fix it? I, I put a fan. I took a fan outside and tried to, I was like, what am I going to do, blow the mold out? It's just, <laughs> you know, it's just, that was my first year. And my second year I did the same thing, just as bad. And the third year I got smarter, and then I also went indoors. But, you know, it was just, we've got all stories. So so what's the stupidest thing you ever did growing or the stupidest thing anybody you know has done growing? I love this. This is fantastic. Well, I had a friend on the show here um, donate. Um, we, we, we This is back. I mean, Cannabis Connection Talk Radio has been going on since 2015. So we've had these waves of, 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 of especially in Santa Cruz, it's kind of a cannabis culture in Santa Cruz. It's, I love the way you articulated that and explored that geographical it is kind of native to the to the environment and we have this special connection towards big big sur and some of this very special genetics that were acclimated hopefully to prevent uh, botrytis and um there was this wave of this banana craze the chiquita banana in santa cruz and a friend of mine came on the show and had been speaking about breeding and he had just done a um, selection of some varieties that he was breeding and had all these seedlings in these little Dixie cups, uh, kind of like the party of the red solo party cups, and donated all these really special uh, varieties, like the, the Big Sur Holy Cross, with this banana uh, variety, and, and we kind of were, I mean, personally, I was so excited for that, but at the time... I was living on Beach Hill, Santa Cruz, and and it was just it was the little grow tent I had in the garage couldn't facilitate the amount of plants I was given, and so I took these plants and made the mistake of bringing you know unsexed seedlings to the family farm, you know 200 miles away out in Gold Country, and tried remotely to teach my parents how to sex seedlings. And of course, the the big mistake was I never came back to to identify the males. And of course, that whole crop because they had a pretty nice garden of clones. We had always grown from clone just to make it simple and and um, you know that just keep it simple um, with the feminized clones. And of course, every bud in that garden was pollinated, and we had a a year of seeded herb, and that was a major stupid mistake because I, I too, was novice at identifying males um, and couldn't, you know, couldn't help my family 200 miles away. And I'd like to think of that as a happy accident. A lot of people growing from seed um, have maybe had happy accidents, and we even have a joke amongst a lot of growers and that have been on the show of starting a happy accident seed company because a lot of the best varieties are these happy accidents and and so it, you know i felt very foolish and i feel like it was a very stupid thing to do i should have grown them out in my backyard and find a way um but yeah no that's humbling and i love that that um you know botrytis in santa cruz is something we've always encountered as well uh we almost have to grow extra knowing that 30 percent is going to go to mold uh, unfortunately, and well, that's kind of why I was so excited to to play with the, those rare genetics. And to this day, I still have varieties from that happy accident happening. Well, it worked out then. So it did work out, but it was a total loss for the short term and in the long term. We have. Well, you also had special. plants who who got to have sex. That's it. That's what happened. <laughs> there was uh, there was things there that we would have never thought to put together, yet. Growing them out years later was like amazing. They're like, wow, black lime reserve and a banana flare that is botrytis resistant. This is an amazing varietal. And we still are learning and, and evolving and, and humbled by the happy accident and that stupid move I made so many years ago. Well, and I'm so glad that we're having this little exchange, that, that this exchange right now, because 
this is what I really wanted to – this is why I didn't want to do a policy book. I mean, yeah, there's policy in it, but that's why I didn't really want to do it is because there are so many great stories like this, and um, and and I, I just – and that's another thing is I'm sure you have this too, that so often when, when growers will get together, it's like these are the stories we tell or um, like – and. You know, this is A, somebody I'm not mentioning, and also B, this is long past the statute of limitations. But, like, a, I knew this guy who was driving a, a huge load of stuff to, to Minnesota, I think, somewhere in the Midwest. And um, there was highway construction, and he happened, he was taking a U-Haul, and he, he was highway construction, and there's a cop stuck right behind him for, you know, like an hour. And oh, man. <laughs> he said for the first few minutes he he was completely freaking out, and then it's just serenity prayer. And, you know, either something's going to happen or not. And he ended up, everything was fine. Um, you know, but he realized afterwards he hadn't breathed for the last hour. Yeah, or his knuckles were needing circulation. They're so white. Yeah, so there's, I mean, there's all sorts of stories like that that I just, I wanted to include because I just, I love them. Another another part that I want to make sure I get in that is before we wrote the book, Tony begged me not to talk about uh, cannabis evolution because the evolution of the plant itself. Because he's like, Derek, let's let's try to stay a little bit focused, please, um, because my <laughs> books tend to, to go all over and. I get there, and there's this question that's just burning at me. So I had to, I had to do it, and he ended up okay with it. But, but anyway, the, the 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 evolution question ends up I had the wrong question. My original question was, how is it that we evolved receptors for something this plant makes? It's like that's just a miracle. But it ends up it's the wrong question because. Cannabis evolved about 36 million years ago, and humans evolved, you know, I don't know, 50,000 to 2 million years ago, depending on how you want to count it. Um, so, but, but it's not true that we developed something to respond to the plant. That's not the miracle. Because the endocannabinoid system in our bodies evolved about 200 million years ago. And all animals that they've tested, except for crustaceans, like crabs and stuff, and insects, all other types of animals they've tested have endocannabinoid receptors. And it's the largest or one of the largest systems in our body that's necessary for all sorts of things. Like it ends up that if a woman doesn't have uh, endocannabinoid receptors in her uh, reproductive system, she can't get pregnant. It, it, it does all sorts of amazing stuff everywhere. Wow. And like one, one doctor I interviewed said to me that it's kind of unfortunate that they were studying marijuana when they discovered it because the sort of fear of marijuana has made it so the system hasn't been studied as much as endocrine system or you know any other of the nervous system, any of those systems, because they were so scared of, oh, cannabinoid. Yes, yes, but of it, course. It's... Um, the miracle is not that we developed this thing, the receptors for the plant, but the miracle is the plant developed substances that would affect our receptors. You see what I'm trying to get at? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so the miracle is that the plant evolved this thing to which we are responsive, not that we evolved the ability to respond to the plant. And it's just, it's, I just love this. And... Um, it's, I find, incredibly fascinating. And, you know, I'm still not really sure why or how the, uh, even after interviewing doctors, I'm not really sure why or how the, the marijuana helps my Crohn's so much, but, uh, or any other conditions. Um, they, they did walk me through a lot of stuff, but, but I, I, a lot of it still seems pretty mysterious to me, which is fine, which is fine. Anyway, so we did talk about evolution a little bit, too, just because I thought that was so fascinating. Oh, another thing I want to mention, and you probably know this already, and you probably had guests talk about this, but I'll say it really quickly, that it ends up our relationship with the plant goes back, if you include rope, 
it goes back at least 25,000 years. And wow. our relationship for, for either ceremony or getting high, you know, I don't know which it was. I think they're probably combined, uh, goes back at least five or 6,000 years. Um, and so I wanted to put that in the book, too, just to sort of talk about how silly it is to make it illegal when people have, which, by the way, people have been making it illegal for a long time. Like there was this guy in 15th century Saudi Arabia that would, I think it's 15th, that was a long time ago, uh, who said anybody consuming marijuana, they would, what they would do as punishment is remove all their teeth. Wow. Severe. Um, Brutal. Which did, which did not work, by the way. That prohibition only lasted like 30 years, and then they got rid of it, and people were still consuming it. Yeah, well, exactly. I think that's, um, of course, <laughs> they probably used it to, to help with the pain, the analgesic effects for losing their teeth. We do have some people streaming in live. I don't want to interrupt the flow of our conversation, but they're asking, is the book available in audio? Um. Not yet, but the publisher might put it out in audio. They put my last book out in audio, uh, so I'm presuming they're going to do this one, but we haven't talked about it yet. Fantastic. So not yet. So we'll we'll kind of wait, wait and see. But it is available, and that's part of why we're having the show is to you know promote the book. I think it's an important conversation. One thing too is the, I mean I, I do appreciate the the research and these fascinating. Uh, I mean this is the kind of talking shop and, and cannabis uh, appreciation that uh, we, we love and, and, and care so much about. But in many ways, the timely conversation is a little bit of this legalization prohibition 2.0. And I would love to hear your thoughts on on, on that part of the book. And, uh, and that was kind of what, what drew me to it as well. Um, and, and our dear friend Billy was speaking to this. And obviously, this is a, a big part of, of our ongoing conversations here on the radio. And uh, I think it's really important, too, to, to have someone that, like yourself and, and of course, Tony, the, the you know, putting your minds together and, and trying to bring that to posterity and document it, too. But you're just, you're as a person, as a patient, as a grower, what are your thoughts on this um, legalization, pro, you know, well, prohibition it's, it's, 2.0? It's a, it's a, it's a disaster, and it's it was a disaster in Colorado and in Oregon, and it's really a transfer of wealth. It's not. I mean, well, I'm going to back up a little bit, and this is this is the same story that happened in the 50s through the 90s and to today with family farms where they were taken over by big ag you know in the 70s get bigger get out and in the 90s i was part of a working group of environmentalists i'm a long-time environmentalist and i was a part of a working group of environmentalists small farmers uh animal rights people um i guess that was that was it uh trying to figure out how to oppose the organic standards that were put in place in the 90s, and the problem with the organic standards was, and this is going to sound familiar, is that the tests that they did were so expensive and so onerous that all these all these small farmers who had been de facto organic forever, they'd never used chemicals, the tests were so expensive that they couldn't get them. So they were no longer considered organic, but the big corporations could, you know, it's, it's pocket change for them to hand out, you know, 250000 or however much it was for, for the tests. And no big deal. So you ended up with a lot of organic farmers being driven out of business by this thing that was supposedly uh, about bringing, you know, yes, you, you, it, it was a good thing to try to make some sort of legal standard for what organic means because otherwise, you know, anybody can claim anything's organic. But the way it was done, again, was just this complete, you know, the family farmers got the shaft and the, 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 the corporations got the certi certificates, which, gosh, does that sound familiar? And then we scary we familiar, forward. yeah. History repeats itself. And um, you know, one of the things that that you know, both both Tony and I have some. You know, we've criticized capitalism along the way, but let's leave that aside for a minute and just talk about. You know, let's leave aside whether the American dream is a good thing or not. We'll just go with it being. And people need to support themselves in the system in some way or another. 
And that's one of the things that was wonderful about the entire cannabis system is that cost for startup for a small indoor grow, let's say for, for a nice, you know, fairly good quality, let's say, you want to say 10K? Is that, is that you comfortable with that? Sure. Yeah, definitely. Um, and, um, you know, honestly, most people, if you borrow from relatives or something, you could probably do it, and you could you could start supporting yourself for 10K or for an outdoor grow. For crying out loud, all you have to do is ask a friend if you can, you know, you don't even have to own the land. You can ask a friend if you can grow on their land. And for distribution, all you had to do is have a beater car that has working turn signals and all the brake lights work and a friend in Chicago and a friend in Northern California and enough money for gas. And I mean, that's, <laughs> that's the American dream. Yeah. Is to be able to support yourself, work for yourself, not have to be somebody else's employee. And then there's all the trimmers who were, and I'm sorry, I mean, stop me if this is all stuff you've covered a hundred times. No, this is but, really nice. I love the way you're, the, the, you know, the, the flow here because it is, and it, it, this is, a, unfortunately, it's almost like a, a romantic afterthought um we're still we're still but there's still people that love and care for this plan and it isn't there's still a dream here i think it's really and, nice i love what you're saying well there's that's that's one of the things that we wanted to do in the book is we wanted to you know do a little bit of the woo-woo stuff and you know do because because it's part of it too and it's, i feel it too it's like i have a friend I, I just i wanted to put this in the interview somewhere it's not in the book but i had this friend who started growing in her bedroom and she had to move the plants to another room. And I've never experienced this, but this is, you know, some people do this. She had to move the plants to another room because she said they were keeping her awake all night with all their singing and chanting. <laughs> I love that. Wow. <laughs> and, so, I mean, there's, you know, there's that. But there's also the fact that there are single mothers who supported themselves with their children by trimming because they could do it at home and, you know, they can, it's something you can interrupt easily, you know, when the kid goes silent in the other room and you know that he's starting to eat the kitty litter or something. You know, you could, you could it's something that's <laughs> a way people could make a living. And with small, with a very, very small initial investment. And then when legalization hit California, I talked to an attorney and also I talked to the local regulators about possibly, you know, opening some sort of shop or doing something. And the attorney who specialized in cannabis compliance, he said, if you don't have $250,000 cash, not equity, but cash, he said, if you don't have $250,000 cash, don't even bother applying. And, wow. you know, it's, it's one thing to try to hit up your family and friends for a total of 10K, and it's another thing entirely to try to hit up your family and friends for 250K. I mean, 250K is... Forget it. That's, I can't do that. Yeah, exactly. And, and so that's one reason that some people call the new regulations uh, Prohibition 2.0. And, you know, if Tony were on here, he could do this part justice, better justice than I can. But I can talk about a little bit about, you know, I'll just throw out the idea. If you can tell me the numbers if, that you happen to know, you might know the numbers better than I. But the amount of money that they're charging people who are not in compliance with the like county regulations is just that's been driving there are there are people who who's, who own their land free and clear who've lost their land because it's like five thousand ten thousand dollars a day in fines or some huge amount of money in fines that there's no way they can ever pay off and that's one re one reason among many that a lot of people are calling legalization prohibition 2.0 uh, yeah, I think that's important to emphasize. And what well, the thing is about Prop 64 is it does have this local control piece to it. So each community, each county had its own opportunity to write the ordinance, to write the laws of the land. And you have this patchwork fiefdoms of dry counties and, and, and green, you know, green zones. And, and, and unfortunately, in different – Santa Cruz, too, is really tricky because we have – the second smallest county in the, all of California, and our all of our water, all aquifers depend on on rain, you know, rainfall, and we are where the mountains meet the sea, and it's just you know we we had such a colorful 
historic, legendary connection of growing special cannabis. We're home of the haze in the Santa Cruz Mountains. Uh, and, and these lines were acclimated to these mountainous microclimates of Happy Valley, of, of, of Boulder Creek, the San Lorenzo Valley, of these, 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 um, the summit, these really hot and humid, you know, hot, dry parts of the tops of the summit of, of Santa Cruz Mountains, all the way down into some of these, like, meadows of Bonnie Dune and, and these wonderful terroir specific varietals, you know, like, like I said, we're such a small, little community county in the greater scheme of of california but we had such a diverse genetic offering and a lot of people came from emerald triangle they came they would pilgrimage to santa cruz county because we were the home the keepers of the seeds the home of the haze the blue dream wonderful varietal that still is probably the number one or in the top three best sellers of all cannabis industry everywhere is a Santa Cruz Haze with DJ Short's Blueberry. We're the building blocks of legends here. And and then, yeah, what happened, they took that all away and pushed all the cultivation to South County in these industrial ag zones that are adulterated with these these harmful cancer causing chemicals and a lot and then you look at Monterey County too in the salad bowl of the war, of the nation and they you know forced all the cannabis cultivation into these greenhouse footprints that were run down and 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 it's just it's just kind of a, a metaphor to this this mess this disaster of regulating something that they just didn't care to learn or understand and just tax the heck out of it and over-regulate it. And if you were to continue, right, to do what you love out there in the Santa Cruz Mountains, I believe I spoke with one uh, family. I met the daughter before a show uh, a year ago, Last Harvest, and, yeah, they found, you know, a few patches that were out of compliance and it was ten thousand dollars a day for the plants they had so they cut them all obviously it just by default they you know kill the garden or i've also seen in this county where they find indoor because you mentioned indoor and that is part of some of the best indoor grows I've ever been a part of or, or seen or experienced. Like, when I moved to Santa Cruz, it was the big city. I was 18 years old, fresh out of high school. I was a musician and knew other musicians, and I got a, a lead on a room on Beach Hill because one of my buddies, Joey Beatty, thank you, Joey, was going on tour and just didn't want to pay rent and didn't want to sublet, and he just said, Smiley, come to Santa Cruz and take my room, and hopefully the roommates are down, and... And that's how I started, but I had no lead on jobs. I had no lead on I, – I sold moving to Santa Cruz to my parents because I could go to Cabrillo College, and and it, it worked. You know, it worked out, but I chopped my way to the top. I had to find a way to pay rent and never had been outside of the rural parts of the fruit growers region in El Dorado County, like even stoplights and bike lanes, I was like – never knew right and so growing and, and trimming cannabis was a way for me to get my get organized and, and pay my rent and 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 it really provided for not only myself but all these i lived in a surf house of 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 musicians and they played in the band the moon germs and we would sell clones we we turned this old victorian in the top part of the attic into uh, you know propagation station of, of, of making cuttings and taking cuttings from mothers and selling trays, and then we would go to the indoor farms that we sell the cuttings to, and trim their harvests. And we all paid rent and we all went to college, and it it just blossomed from there. And and obviously, with the passage of Prop 64, now if you're caught with an indoor grow. And they're using the PG&E bill, and they're all working together, the sheriffs, the law enforcement, the, the PG&E operators. I know a close, dear friend and family member recently, last year, $250,000 fine to the county just because he had his garage with 10 lights in it. 
And I know businesses in this community that were built on 12 lighter, two car garage grows, especially during the, you know, 2008 through 2010, all the crazy trauma we've gone through as a, as a country, right? With, with recessions. And then of course, you know, just hard times and cannabis was always there for this community there are so many venues and businesses that were built on that brown paper bag money that cannabis provided and now yeah this legalization has actually become worse than than it used to be uh, and that is just a local story but this is this is you know just a piece of the greater narrative that we're all encountering and still dealing with even if there was goodwill to get into compliance and do it right, like you said, you need that $250,000 cash to even start the process. And I don't think that is an exaggeration. To this day, I'm working with a legacy group that's been in this community for 30 years. And we have compliant cannabis in metric ready to go. And we're having such a hard time just selling cannabis because it's the market pressures and just where we're at and we have the license to open retail and it's it's just been really hard really challenging and it does come down to the the capital the the cash flow and that's something the corporations definitely have and we need to come together gather the wagons and find a way through this and what are your thoughts on i mean there's no easy Solutions, but in this research and in this work with Tony and in in writing a book like this, I imagine it's kind of been a a, a long, strange, and fruitful trip. But do you have any thoughts on solutions or any ideas or anything? I'd love to hear your your feedback regarding how do we get out of this mess. Well, thanks thanks again, and thanks for such a great interview for all your great questions. And I want to say a couple things. One of them is that. Uh, after legalization happened, after Prop 64 um, was put into effect, a whole bunch of restaurants in Crescent City closed. And I am in no way suggesting that they were laundering money. I have no idea. Um, but I will suggest that there was a lot less disposable income very quickly. Yes. And I don't think it was a coincidence that a, a bunch of – I mean, so – this, this just kills me that when a Walmart comes to town, everybody, all the, all the county people always bend over backwards to say, oh, you won't have to pay taxes because we understand the multiplier effect. You know, all the employees are going to, you know, be buying stuff. And, and they understand that when it's a Walmart or a Home Depot or any other huge corporation. And so they try to welcome them. But with cannabis, they've all got their hands out up front saying, we want the tax money immediately forgetting about the multiplier effect that, you know, I, I know, and I'm sure you do too, plenty of people who who raised their children in a community, stayed in that community, and, you know, whatever we think of welfare, they stayed off welfare because they were able to either do, you know, trimming or, you know, small-time helping of small growers, and all that money went back into the community. And so true. Yeah, they're completely ignoring that. Um, that's one thing I want to say. Another thing I wanted to say is I love what you were saying about all the different valleys having their different strains for the local area, and that's another thing that this is costing us. And I mentioned this in the book that before I moved to Northern California, I never really liked berries because I'd only bought them from the grocery store. And now that I live here, and there's some local blueberry, like there's a local blueberry farm. Oh yeah, there you go. I eat blueberries constantly because they're so good, and the ones in the grocery store are just crap. <laughs> and, and it's the same with, um, I was at a feed store buying soil, and they, somebody had set up a tomato stand outside, you know, with just a little, a little folding table with some homegrown heirloom tomatoes. And my opinion on tomatoes was the same as it was on berries, that I just, I mean, it's like, it's garnish on your on your, but it, it doesn't actually taste like anything. And I bought some of these tomatoes just for the heck of it. They were so good. And do we want the same thing to happen to pot? You know? Yeah, yeah. It's it's 
if I could have a dream job in marijuana, it would be I just have a complete. I love like heirloom strains, and I love I love hearing about all these funky different different strains that are local, and that's that's you know strains of vegetables and fruits are disappearing, you know, as fast as wild nature is disappearing. Um, yeah, so you know, true. And the same thing, I think, is really going to happen with marijuana. We're going to end up with, you know, 15 strains that grow in, gray, in greenhouses in Santa Barbara. Yeah, and they're all Girl Scout cookie gelato crosses. It's almost all the same profile. Yeah. They have different names, but it's all the same stuff. Exactly. It's really exactly. disappointing. You're so right. So finally, I'm going to try to answer your question. But if I, one of the questions I asked Tony was, so if they made you marijuana czar, what would you do? And one of the things, one of the easy solutions, and people can still do this in states that haven't legalized. This is going to be really hard to do retroactively, but one of the things that should have been happened should have happened is a cap on on grow size. Um, nice. If you recall, yeah. before Prop 64, there were big discussions as to whether the outdoor grow should be capped at one one acre or ten acres, and they eventually made no cap. And um, so that's one thing that, that should have happened and should happen when new places legalizes. You know, and this this might make some growers mad, but I don't care. Nobody needs to grow 20 acres of marijuana. You know, you can do one acre, you can do five acres. You know, we could probably talk about six or seven acres or something, but nobody needs to grow 20 acres. That's that's absurd. too much money. Yeah, it's absurd. And it's, yeah, you're right. I think even and an acre is a massive yeah, I, achievement. I, compl I completely agree. That's <laughs> acres a lot. Um, but I was going to be generous. Um, and the same indoor, you know, it's like 200 square feet, 300 square feet, whatever. But but nobody needs an entire city block. And um, But how do we do that retroactively? Um, you know, it's really hard. Okay, another thing that Tony suggested but uh, was is, is that we work very hard. Okay, given that Tony is not the czar of marijuana, and given that we're not going to be able to put into place, you know, one acre, half acre limits or whatever, um, a couple things. One of them is that we should. Uh, he really wants to do the sort of thing where. Um, you have it grown by, you have, like champagne can only be grown in a certain part of France. Yes. Or, honest to goodness, um, oh, God. Now, what's, what's the cheese you grate onto spaghetti? I'm, I'm, miss, I'm having a blank. Mozzarella? Or no. Parmesan? Parmesan. Parmesan, Parmesan. He said that the real Parmesan cheese, not the stuff we have in the U.S., but real Parmesan cheese, Parmigiano Reggiano, I think, is only allowed to be grown in one area. So we, we could try to get niche markets, you know, like there is for, 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 for wine, where you have this is grown in this certain watershed, this is grown in this watershed, and you promote it that way. That's, that's one thing. But another thing, honestly, I think in the meantime, something I think that's really important is for people to attempt to uh, establish direct connections between growers and uh, customers. We should take advantage of the fact that legality has made it so it's easier to communicate. And um, and the fact is that you know this this has not really helped consumers so much. The the prices are still high at the uh, at the retail. So at true. The retail. Yeah, ridiculously and, high actually. And it's just like with corn, where the farmer gets a pittance, and every every person in the mill takes their bite. Yeah. And so, one of the things I think that individuals can try to do to stay afloat in this, you know, sort of dreadful thing that's been happening, is to reach out directly to consumers and try to uh, do sort of a CSA model, where you know. Uh, I've I've been talking to some people about this, and there are people who want a personal grower. They don't want to support. You know, they may live in you know someplace, and they want uh, they don't want to support the the big corporations that are taking over everything, and they don't want to support the canocrats. And 
they do want to support a family farmer. And, you know, honestly, this is what I do with, with, my, with my beef. Um, I, buy, I buy a cow at a time every, you know, three years or however long it takes me to cow from a local rancher. Uh, I love this. This is such good. Yeah, this is fantastic ideas. And I think that we should, uh, you know, I know that, I mean, for, for crying out loud, you know, we, this is before my time, but we collectively, we growers, survived Prohibition 1.0, and I think that we need to keep on keeping on. And I think we need to. Amen to do what we can and to resist prohibition 2.0 and one of the ways to do that i think is to you know just to find ways to 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 go to customers directly because then i mean when i buy this this cow you know buy it's it's a it's a cow who was reasonably happy until his last day and he also was on grass and also it's cheaper than at the grocery store and so if you can establish some direct connections to people, which can be hard to set up, but that's perhaps another conversation, is, is I mean, that's one thing to do. I don't know how somebody's going to do it who doesn't have, you know, friends all over the country, but that's, that's one thing. And so far as, and also I don't, I don't want to, you know, neither Tony nor I are, um, neither one of us thinks that the, the system itself is anything but entirely corrupt and or entirely slanted toward the rich. But it's also both of us believe, okay, there was a thing happened in, in Del Norte that was really uh, extraordinary. When they went to reduce the number of plants that a person could have for their personal consumption, this is before Prop 64, this is back in 2008 or 9 or 7 or something, you know, you were allowed to have 99 plants for personal consumption. And they wanted to reduce it to six at the county board of supervisors meeting. And it was extraordinary because marijuana growers and patients flooded the meeting. Yes. And this was direct democracy in action in all of its messiness because had the supervisors voted to reduce it to six, they would not have been able to get out of the building. It's so important to bring that back. And we're at, we're at the last 30 seconds, so I don't want us to get cut off. I just want to say thank you so much. And, and everybody, please buy a copy of Marijuana, A Love Story, or check it out. And I want to give you the last word. So thank you for joining us this evening. This is a great show. Oh, I just want to thank you. Your questions were fantastic. And, uh, and I loved it. I'd love to do it again. Yes, yes, we've finally gotten to a really delicious, juicy segment, but uh, we're going to get cut off. So thank you so much for listening, and have a wonderful weekend. I'm Smiley Green. You've been listening to The Cannabis Connection, and have a great week.